Well, this morning we're going to be back in, or we are back in James, uh, James chapter 5, James chapter 5, and I want to, um, want to say before we start that I will only make one point today. Um, so that that's the plan. There's actually three points. It, it works out sometimes when when I look at the entire paragraph. I find that it fits better uh, in an outline if I use the entire par- paragraph. And sometimes I can break it up and have two different two different outlines. But today uh, I was only able or I was was able to to work it out with with uh, the entire paragraph outline. So. Uh, we will just make one point so you can relax and, and know that we're not going to be here till two or three preaching today. Well, my, the title of my sermon today is Waiting in Silence. Waiting in the Silence, that is. Waiting in the Silence. Let me read the passage, James chapter 5, uh, starting, in verse, starting in verse 7. James writes... Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example of Brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We pray, Lord, that our time, this time of uh, preaching, would be, uh, would be glorifying to you. Father, you, we pray and I ask that, that I would decrease, that you may increase, that you would use me as your mouthpiece, that I, would, uh, that I would just be preaching and teaching your word and not my own opinion, but your word. And Lord, we know that it is powerful and that it will not return void. I trust that promise in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, we look at the sufferings of life, of this life, and we can see them as overwhelming. We struggle to see God at work in them, in our struggles, and sometimes sometimes we see even injustices, and we want to make them right. And beloved brethren, it's, this is not a bad thing. Uh, we should have a righteous indignation toward the wrongs of this world toward the wrongs that we see. And our culture, frankly, gives us plenty of reasons for this indignation. We see people wrongly suffering. In our society, the murder of unborn babies is the most grievous wrong that, that, that we can see out there. We have been legally killing babies in the womb here in our country since 1973. And you might ask... Where is God in all of this? Where is He at? Why is He silent? Why is He letting these things happen? When will Christ return and make things right? I know that's the cry of my heart. When will He come and wipe out all of the ills of society, such as racism, abuse, and tyranny? 
When will there be true justice? These are certainly fair questions. Brothers and sisters, may I submit to you that we don't completely understand all that God is doing. Our lack of understanding and patience, though, doesn't mean that God is not working. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson and what he says. Appearances can be deceptive. The fact that we cannot see what God is doing does not mean that He is doing nothing. The Lord has His own timetable. It is we who must learn to adjust to it, not vice versa. When God's time comes, nothing will stand in His way. We can therefore wait for Him with this happy confidence. As for God, His way is perfect. End quote. Listen to this story for, from church history. In the 1800s, a, a, a pastor named George Pentecost visited a lady who was in deep trouble because of great afflictions. She, when he went into her home, she was working on a bit of embroidery, and as he talked to her, she dropped it wrong side up. And there it lay, a, a mass of crude work, tangled, everything seeming to be out of order. And he said, well, he said, what, what are you engaged in? What are you doing? In my own words. And she said, oh, it's a, it's a Christmas gift. And he remarked, I should, should not think that you would waste your time on that. It looks tangled and without design and without meaning. She was obviously surprised at what he said and, and surprised at her oppos- or his opposition to what she was doing. And she said, why, Mr. Pentecost, you're looking at the wrong side. <coughs> Turn it over, right? Then he said, that's just what you are doing. You are looking at the wrong side of God's working with you. It may seem like a a tangled mess, but up there he's working on the right side. See, it's our perspective, right? Dear brothers and sisters, this life may seem tangled and messy to you. Any caring Christian who looks at our lives with all the problems and difficulties should say with the Apostle John, Come, Lord quickly. Yet we wait in deafening silence. It is very difficult at times for us to wait. You see, we're an impatient lot. We live in a a society with everything at our fingertips. We can travel to the other side of the world in a matter of hours. You realize that? Presidents and kings can talk to each other at any time of the day or night. It has been said that all men commend patience, although few are willing to practice it. We want what we want, and we want it now. Yet that's not how it works with the Lord. For certain, there are power structures in this world that God will judge and He will tear down. But He will not do it, do so in our timing. In the meantime, though, He will will not necessarily keep us from the pain and the hurt that results from those power structures. The Israelites in Egypt are a great example of this. Uh, God made the Israelites endure 400 years of slavery. Why did He do so? Why did He subject them to wicked men for 400 years 
because of his own purposes and his own glory. The exile of the people in Babylon, of of Israel in Babylon, is another example of God using his people to endure suffering for his purposes and for his glory. The suffering of Job offers another example, of a great example of God's purpose in suffering. And as you read through the book of Job, one thing that is, is, is eerily silent, one thing that's eerily not there, God doesn't say a whole lot, does He? Until Job 38. That is the end of the book. He starts out by saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You see, God is saying, oh man, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't understand all that I'm doing. You can't see all that I can see. Brothers and sisters, we may not know exactly what God is doing, and we may not know exactly how He will work out all things as we wait in our silence, but He does, he does call us to wait, and He does call us to trust Him. But in the meantime... He doesn't leave us without answers. He gives us hope as we wait. In our passage today, James provides three reasons why you can have great patience as you endure trials and suffering. You can have great patience because of number one, God has a certain, uh, the Lord has a certain plan. We can trust in His plan. We can trust that He will do what He says He will do. We may not understand. We may not completely get it on this side of of heaven. But we can understand He has a certain plan. And secondly, we can understand He has a clear purpose. He has a clear purpose. And thirdly, He has a comforting presence. Comforting presence. We're just going to look at the first one. that, That we can have great patience, or you can have great patience, as you endure suffering, as you endure trials, you can have great patience because of our Lord's certain plan. Now we have arrived at the end of this letter from James. I believe that that verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7, is the opening statement of his conclusion. James says, therefore, therefore, In other words, based on everything that I've said, let me close with these parting words. Now, we need to understand that James clearly here has shifted gears. He has gone from speaking directly to the the wicked rich people that are these landowners that are are oppressing the, the poor brethren, and now he's directly addressing these poor brethren who are suffering. Now, as you might expect... This paragraph, then, has, bears resemblance to his opening paragraph. As we have said in the outline, then, we can have great patience because our Lord has a certain plan. In other words, we can trust what He's doing even though we can't understand everything and even though He seems silent. Really, that is the big problem here. James's readers had turned to, the, to Christ as their Lord and Messiah, to Jesus as their Lord and Messiah, and yet they were met with great difficulty and suffering. Most likely, they were wondering if the Lord had abandoned them. Where had He gone? I believe that great question helps us understand the focus on His return that we see in the New Testament. Just think of it from the position of a, of a first century believer. 
they had, they had believed in Christ as their Lord and Messiah, yet their oppressors, oppressors could mockingly point to His absence as, their, as these dear saints endured great difficulty. You see, they believed in a crucified Messiah. They believed in a Messiah that had gone to the cross. This was, a, this was scandalous in the first century. Paul exclaims this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are, who are being saved it is the power of God. You see, Paul goes on to say that a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was foolishness to the Gentiles. And in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 1.24, he says this, But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to us who have been called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And let me just say this, the cross is no less foolishness in our world today. But this accusation of foolishness takes on a much more serious tone when it is accompanied by persecution. It's quite another it's quite an, one thing, it's one thing to be thought of as foolish in this world, but quite another to suffer bodily harm and and economic difficulty or whatever the persecution comes in for that foolishness. Purifying, actually. You see, we live in a a world that has been marred by sin, right? Listen to this quote by Paul David Tripp in an article that that chronicles his own deep suffering. He's talking about he he endured kidney failure. And he says this, he says, I wasn't singled out. God hadn't forgotten me or turned His back. I wasn't being punished for my choices and I wasn't receiving the expected consequences for poor decisions. My story is about the regular regular things that happen to us all because we live in a world that has been dramatically damaged by sin. In this world, sickness and disease live and our bodies break down and don't function properly. In this world, sometimes chronic and sometimes acute assaults uh, sometimes acute, assaults us. Let me say that again. In this world, pain, sometimes chronic and sometimes acute, assaults us and makes life nearly unlivable. We live in a broken world where people die. Food decays. Wars rage. Governments are corrupt. People take what, take what isn't theirs and inflict violence on one another. Spouses hate or act hatefully toward one another. Children are abused instead of protected. People slowly die of starvation or die suddenly from disease. Drugs addict and destroy. Gossip destroys reputations. Lust and greed controls hearts. Bitterness grows like a cancer and the list could go on and on. End quote. Beloved, that's the world that we live in. And James's readers then were lived, lived in a broken world made worse by suffering from persecution. His first statement in this letter after his salutation was, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Clearly they were encountering great difficulty. They lived in a, a, very, a very confusing time and they believed in a crucified Messiah. They, they had lost all standing in the society they lived in. 
they only had, just get this, they only had the Lord and other Christians in this world. And yet the, the Lord was strangely silent. And other Christians seemed to be forsaking them. They seemed to be more intent on running off to gather wealth for themselves than they were about taking care of their needy brethren. These people would need great endurance because of the Lord's coming. Though imminent, though imminent, that, that coming would not happen in their lifetime. They couldn't know that, but they needed great endurance, and James knew that they needed great endurance. And the trials that they were suffering, the trials that they were going through, were giving them the endurance that they needed. James had told them in chapter 1, verse 18, that they were the first fruits among his creatures. Now, I believe that James wanted them to realize that they were the first fruits of the church. They were the first fruits of the church. They represented the first fruits of the harvest of, the, of this church age, which the Lord would bring forth. They were the first of the church age. Can you imagine the importance then of them? They're, as such, their endurance was incredibly needful. From their point of view then, the, the Lord's return was going to be in their li- lifetime. And we can understand that. We can get it because he, was, he had left, he had gone, right? And they were thinking he's going to come back right then in their lifetime. But looking back from our point of view, we can see why he has tarried, right? James himself must, must have thought the Lord's coming was imminent in his lifetime. Because he tells them in 5.7 to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now many have questioned why they believed he would be coming so soon. But I don't think we should struggle with this. Because we should always live as if the the Lord could return at any any moment. His return, return has always been imminent. As in he could return at any time. But get this. What we have to remember is, is that his delay has resulted in many people coming to know Him through the preaching and the teaching of His church. As they have shared the the gospel, that many people have come to know, know Christ because the Lord has tarried. And as such, when we start thinking of James's readers as being the first fruits of this great harvest, just think about that. They could not have known the great impact that they would have on so many. They could not have looked forward and understood what God was doing through them. Their suffering has been a model to millions of Christians in the church age. And they couldn't have known that. But as they endured their great difficulties, they had to wonder, Where are you, Lord? And they needed great wisdom to make it through. They needed wisdom from above, which is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we've studied James, I've been amazed at how many times that James alludes to the words of Jesus. Really, almost every paragraph in the letter quotes or alludes to the teaching of the Lord. James understands. James understands that the Lord seems to be silent in their suffering. But during his earthly ministry, that would be the Lord's earthly ministry, he had given them the wisdom that they had needed. 
So James alludes to it, and he, he speaks the words of Christ, reminding them of all that the Lord had taught them. As we have saw in the first few chapters of chapter 5, their suffering has come at the hands of these rich landlords. James has made clear that these rich people, while prospering in this life, have faced certain, a certain prospect of condemnation and judgment. Evidently, these landlords are holding back what is rightfully theirs. These wages, the wages that they needed to support themselves. Thank you. Therefore, great suffering and even death occurs when they're held back. These wages. Again, the Lord seems to be absent in all of this. As Job cried out in Job 30 verse 20, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. And as David exclaimed in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, we get a glimpse of the heartbreak felt by these people. We know that this world is in the grip of the enemy. By and large, we don't completely understand the true difficulty, though, that they faced as they lived in this cruel world. Most of us have very little experience with true difficulty. We grumble when the power goes out. We empty the shelves of milk and bread at the grocery store when the temperature dips. We have only glimpsed a little bit of of great difficulty. We don't know what it is to go months and even years without proper nourishment or proper medication. And it's in the midst of that sort of difficulty that James tells them in James 5-7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Therefore, be patient. He's telling them to trust God's plan. James shifts back to to speaking to these poor brethren and he tells them to be patient. This word then is closely tied to the word endurance in chapter 1, which means to have staying power under under trials and difficulties. So endurance is used to speak of, of enduring difficult and adverse circumstances. But by using the current word, the word that he used for patience, he, he wants them to un- understand that they must not only have that staying power under difficulty, but he wants them to endure their adversities, enduring their adversities, that is, but he wants them to be non-retaliatory toward their adversaries. You see, our tendency... The tendency of our heart is to lash out against those who are oppressing us. We tend to think of all the things that we would say when we get, when given a chance. We, we want to lash out. That's the reason James warned them in chapter 3 of the danger of loose tongues. He wanted them to understand that as they dealt with these great difficulties, there is a danger in using your tongue and lashing out. He wants them to endure their great suffering with patience. James thought they could do this because, or says that they could do this because of the Lord's plan. He's coming again. As Christians, no matter what our view of eschatology is, we can agree on this, that the Lord is coming again. And this is a source of great hope. We have a, a certain future with the, when the Lord, with, when the, because the Lord is coming. Despite His absence now, we know that He's coming. You see, our Lord Jesus came as a baby in a manger, right? 
His first coming. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. But in His second coming, in His coming again, He will come as judge and as vindicator. Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Jesus will come from heaven and rescue us from the wrath to come. But this word coming has more also, also has to do with presence. Not only will He come, but He will be present with us. This should bring us great comfort, especially if we're suffering. James goes on to say, if you look at the text back in James 5, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and, and late rains. See, James wants them to understand he's, he's looking at the example of the farmer, an example of the required patience it takes as we wait for the Lord. The farmer waits for the early and, and later rains in the autumn and spring season. The early rain came as, as, at, at seed time. And the later rain came at the harvest, just before the harvest. You see, without these two rains, without these two rains, the crops would be unfruitful. They were promised by the Lord in Deuteronomy 11. It says that the Lord will give them rain in their season, the early and late rain. But the Israelites were commanded not only to wait patiently for these rains, but also to pray for them. So the point of the illustration that James is using is that it's out of the farmer's hands. He must wait for the one who sends the rains. He can only, the farmer that is, can only cultivate the ground and plant the seed. The Lord alone, he, he, He gives the rains and He gives the growth. The oppressed believers then in this, in this passage therefore must wait patiently for Him as well. There's nothing that they can do other than wait and trust and pray. In James 5.8, James goes on to say, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Having used the farmer and his crops as an example of patience, James, as patient, of patience, James tells his readers again to be patient. Clearly, James wants to remind them to remain this way despite the great difficulties that they faced. You see, God's plan is certain. Jesus will return. Their faith then is clearly shown in their ability to wait for the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, There is nothing which so certifies the genuineness of a man's faith as his patience and patient endurance. His keeping on steadily in spite of everything. End quote. His keeping on steadily in spite of everything. You see that the, the trials show the genuineness of our faith. The trials and difficulties show the genuineness of our faith. But James doesn't just leave them with this command. He doesn't just tell them to be patient. He tells them to, he commends to them to strengthen your hearts. Just as the farmer readies his implements for the harvest, the the believer must strengthen his heart. In contrast with the rich, remember the rich, what did he say? They fatten their hearts for their own judgment. James exhorts the believing poor here to establish their hearts, to, to strengthen their hearts in anticipation of the future blessing 
at the Lord's future coming. Knowing that the Lord would, will vindicate them. Now this word translated strengthen was used by the Lord, by, by Luke, in, in Luke 9.51, when he says this, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That word determined is the same word. Jesus was resolute in his willingness to follow the Father's plan. In other words, nothing would stand in his way as he set his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross. Here in James 5, then, James calls on these suffering Christians to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Believers are thus to remain resolute until the Lord Jesus returns and remedies their situation. They're to remain resolute. They're to strengthen their hearts. Look at the text. James says the, the coming of the Lord is near. The word, the word near means to draw near. It describes something that's so near that its impact could be felt. The word is used in Mark 11.1. 1, As they approached, drew near to Jerusalem, uh, at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples into, into, on into town. Now, the point is that they were close, but they were not there yet. But so close, so close that Jesus was able to send two of his disciples on ahead to get ready, things ready. This was as they readied for the Passover. An illustration of this might be an airplane in a holding pattern just before it arrives at the airport. There's an anticipation, right, of this arrival. It's gonna it's 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 imminent. Another illustration might be the anticipation children feel when their grandparents are on the way to visit. You know, they may, you know, they may stop at a hotel room to, to rest before they get there, and the children know that they're just right there, that they're just right down the road. Grandparents are in the city, and there's a great anticipation with the children. They're not at the house yet, but they know that they're coming. I'm sure many of you remember waking up in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve to see what gifts were under the tree, right? I can remember sneaking into the living room and seeing a shiny new bicycle sitting under the tree. I remember looking at it, but guess what? Couldn't ride it. It was in, sitting in my living room, and it was the middle of the night. I had to wait till the morning. It was near. I could see it, but I couldn't. It wasn't there yet. And that's the way it is with our Lord. He is, he's right there on the cusp of being with us. His return is imminent. And really this should describe then the anticipation of believers as we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus. In the context of James, He will be coming to bless the believers and judge the unbelievers, Right? In the meantime, we are to have patience and strengthen our hearts. We are to wait resolutely on Him. Though he does, that doesn't mean we are to do nothing, right? Listen to this by Oswald Chambers. Wait on God and He will work. But don't wait in spiritual sulks. Because you cannot see an inch in front of you. Are we detached enough from our spiritual hysterics to wait on God? To wait is not to sit with folded hands, but to learn to do what we are told. End quote. 
We're not to sit on folded hands, but we're to learn to do what we are told. And James here says, James here says, strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts and be patient for the coming of the Lord is near. So what are we told to do again as we wait in patience? Let me give you let me give you a quick list that I've come up with in James. Let me give you a quick list. James chapter 1, 2 through 4 says this. Number one, we are to be patient and wait on Jesus. We've seen that in chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. James 1 12 tells us that we are to have a robust hope for the future. God has promised us a, 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 this crown of life. Therefore, we can have a hope for the future. James chapter 1, verse 5, number 3, says that, that we are to strengthen our hearts by being steadfast in prayer. Earlier, James, in chapter five, 1, verse 5, he says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So we are to pray without ceasing. And we are to pray in faith, expecting that God will give us the answers that we need. Number four, we are to dwell on His promises. We are to dwell on His promises. What has He promised us? Again, we've, we saw in James chapter 1, verse 12, that He promises us this crown of life, that He promised to those who love Him. Number five, we are to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. That's James chapter 1, verse 21. Number six, we are to be doers of the word. Doers of the word, not merely hearers. James chapter 1, verse 23. Number 7. We are to love our neighbor without partiality. That's James chapter 2, verse 8. Number 8. We are to bridle our tongues. That's James chapter 3, verse 2. James adds another that's, that's similar. In James chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Do not complain against one another. So we are not to complain as we wait. Number 9. We are to seek for wisdom from above, not from below. We seek for wisdom that is from above. And oh, by the way, I think we said it earlier, this wisdom is personified in, in the Lord Jesus. It was James 3.17, by the way. Number 10. James 4.4 4 says this, that we're to be friends of God and not friends of this world. Friends of God and not friends of the world. Number 11. We are to submit to God. That's James 4.7. 
Submit to God. Number 12. We're to draw near to God. It's James 4, 8. James 4.10 says that we're to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. So as we wait in silence, as we deal with our difficulties, as we deal with the, the struggles of life, these are the things that James, just a quick list of things that James says to do, right? Our Lord wants us to, to do these things. And there's one more thing that we should do while we wait on Jesus. According to the Apostle Paul, we are to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And we do this as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And we're about to partake together. And I want to give you a few reminders as we, as we do so. That's my transition. Oh, that's, the, that's that one. Okay, it just went off. I just want to give you a few reminders as we, as we ready ourselves to partake. I want to remind you that the Lord's Supper is a solemn time. It's a solemn time. There's a, there's a seriousness about it, right? We, in, in partaking, we are proclaiming the Lord's death and we are reflecting on the Lord's death on the cross. I also want to remind you that if, if, you're, if you know your brother has something against you, you need to go to him and make it right. Don't partake if you know that your brother has something against you. That's Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. Not to partake in an unworthy manner. If you have known sin in your life, you need to to repent of it. You need to confess it to the Lord. Turning from it. Don't partake when you have known sin. I also want to remind you that communion, the Lord's Supper, is for believers. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to partake. I do want to remind you of this, that baptism is the public proclamation to the church that you have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. If you have not been baptized, I would ask that you come to see me, to speak to me about believer's baptism. Now, why do we partake in the Lord's Supper? We do so because it brings glory to God. And in, in doing so, it makes foolish the wisdom of this world. Paul writes, as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Ultimately, the cross of Christ is the power unto salvation. So why is this horrific why is the horrific crucifixion of a man that, that happened 2,000 years ago so important and so powerful? If you turn to Isaiah 53, I want to read to you. As we do so, I just want you to meditate on these words. says, Who has believed our message? For to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring he will prolong prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul he will see it and be satisfied by the knowledge of the righteous one my servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he has poured himself out to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet himself he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's our Lord Jesus.
he was crushed. He bore our sins at the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was poured out to death. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's that great exchange that Logan talked about. He took upon himself the sin which we, our sin, he took upon himself the the wrath of the Father for our sin. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift, the gift of God, so that no man may boast. Beloved, if you're sitting here today and, and you know Him, and if you, you have turned to Him in saving faith, it's by His work. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. There's a lot there. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If it weren't for what Christ has done on the cross, you could not be reconciled to the Father. And yet we live in our flesh today. Christ died for all of those sins, right? He not only died for your past sins and your present sins, He died for your future sin. He not only saved you here in the sense of, of saving you from your sin, but He was going to save you into eternity. Paul says in Romans 8, right, that those who justified, He will also glorify. So as we partake in communion, I, I just ask that you meditate on these truths, that you think about them deeply, that you confess sin, that you that you keep a short account 